we loaded this up. Uh, the system programmer loaded Linux on there. We built up a RAM disk. We put the whole genomic database into this RAM disk. And we were running within seconds of the supercomputer. That process right there, we just downloaded an operating system off of the internet for free, managed by a whole bunch of people all over the world. And we don't know any of them. And, and everybody's been contributing to this altruistically. And all of a sudden, we just created a scientific tool that we're now solving problems, like real problems with. And it only costs us the cost of the, buying the hardware. That completely just, it, it, it completely changed how I thought of the world, how I thought of my own career, what I wanted to do. It changed everything for me. With me on the show today is Gregory Kurtzer. Gregory is the founder and chief executive officer at CIQ and the director of Rocky Linux. CIQ is bringing the next generation of HPC and enterprise workloads to the masses. And oh yeah, Rocky Linux, that thing you've been hearing about in the news. Gregory, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. So to start off, let's lay some groundwork as context for people. I feel that high-performance computing is something that anyone in tech can look at and think, oh, wow, this is cool. But because it's a pretty niche segment of computing, I'd venture it's something that a lot of people don't really know much about. So for those unfamiliar with high-performance computing, when we say high-performance, what does that really mean? What kind of workloads does HPC focus on? That is a great question, and it is a highly debated topic, actually, nowadays. It used to mean something very specific. High-performance computing was the use of... of of hardware installations and clusters in order to build and, and support highly parallelized applications. So these are applications that need to scale beyond one compute node and potentially to tens, hundreds, or even thousands of compute nodes all running together. So historically, that's been the primary kind of background of high-performance computing. But more recently, we're seeing high-performance computing kind of expanding uh, out of this niche segment uh, to the point where I'm actually even having enterprises who I never dreamt in a million years would consider themselves a, a consumer of HPC, all of a sudden contacting us and saying, hey, Greg, you know, we have these, these workloads, you know, like AIML and, and compute and data-driven analytics. And, you know, these look a lot, these look and feel a lot like high-performance computing. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the capabilities that we've built in high-performance computing over the past two and three decades is really valuable. And these are capabilities that, that really will help the enterprise as they're starting to do these new kinds of workloads that are really kind of performance intensive. Um, and, and my background now, my interest has actually been, how do I take these high performance capabilities out of this niche segment and how do I pull that into an architecture in which enterprises and organizations can, can consume and leverage that is more compatible with their existing uh, modern architecture? Yeah, so HPC has obviously evolved uh, massively in, in the last few decades. I had the opportunity to speak with uh, Robin Goldstone from uh, Lawrence oh. Livermore National Lab at yeah. Red Hat Summit in 2019. Oh, Robin, well. Yeah, the, she mentioned the transition uh, from kind of bespoke proprietary systems, kind of like the old craze, yeah. to 
commodity systems that are built of parts which would be mostly familiar to anyone in corporate IT. When you were at Lawrence Berkeley, did you did you experience any of that transition on the hardware side? Uh, so I, I got into this, I got into high-performance computing in the mid-ish late 90s when it was just really starting to come out of that. Um, I remember actually watching uh, Robin do a presentation at Linux World, I think it was 1999 or 98 maybe. And uh, when they were basically bringing forth something that they called the MRC, I think it was called the MRC cluster. And it was really, it was Livermore's first commodity built computer. And so that's right when I was getting into this, I actually came out of, I'm a biochemist by degree. And I was coming out of, or coming out of biochemistry and just getting enthralled with Linux and open source and all of this. So I started transitioning my career to this, but it was right at the tail end of kind of, you know, the, the, the Cray and the big iron type systems and much more towards the commodity clusters um, that was really architected by uh, Thomas Sterling and Donald Becker um, back in the early, I think it was early-ish 90s, 92 maybe. And they, they pioneered something called the Beowulf. And the Beowulf architecture is a architecture to do high-performance computing and parallel computing uh, using commodity hardware and free software. And that was really when I first really got there. So um, I was a little bit late to see some of those big iron systems, but just as the Linux systems were taken off is when I really got into high-performance computing. Yeah, so leading right into the software thing, which was my next question, because obviously those old bespoke hardware systems had their own operating systems. Mm -hmm. And you know there was a limitation on just the number of people that would have those. And the vendors, obviously... They sold them, they sold a fair amount, but not everyone was doing the exact type of works that HPC was doing. So if, you know, a thousand people don't have a problem and the one HPC group does have a problem, well, business aspects, they might not be so inclined to, to handle that edge case. Whereas on the open source side, everyone who's working in that space and doing HPC, it gives the community the ability to all work together to solve those problems at the bleeding edge. How much of an advantage do you think bringing an open source into the high performance computing space really had? That's a, that's a, another great question. I think, you know, it, it's, it's fairly massive actually. Um, I mean, as you can see, if you look at the top 500, pretty much every system there at this point, if not all of them is running Linux, right there. Every one of them is basically built on top of an open source foundation. And I'm saying almost uh, every now and then we get a few of the, 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 the top five that are proprietary, like completely proprietary systems. But generally speaking, everything is running on the top 500 is running a, you know, an open source operating system, an open source stack, or making use of open source softwares and, and components like, like the MPI, for example, the message passing interface. Um, so absolutely. But, but it, it's funny, I know you wanted to go to the software side, but I'm also going to bring up the hardware side. All of a sudden, we went from being able to leverage the exact same hardware that the enterprises were, were, were purchasing and the raw numbers of, hard, uh, of you know, components and, and whatnot, being able to leverage that ecosystem, we were, we're immediately able to get systems that have a much lower um, DOA rate. You know, they're much more resilient. They've been more, you know, more tested. There's more engineering going into it. A very, you know, much larger segment is what these, these systems are really driving towards. So um, there was value in them as well. So across the board, by kind of moving the high performance computing you know ecosystem from big iron to commodity clusters i mean it's just been such a dramatic shift 
for high performance computing, for science in general, that's leveraging, you know, the, these computational systems. Um, but also, as we're seeing more recently, this kind of coming back again towards enterprise and the value that this, this, these capabilities are bringing back to enterprise. So this was a, this was a tremendously valuable, it was an imperative move. Um, I think that happened. And I think that can be really seen very well as if you just, you know, check out the top 500. Right. So let's let's dig into the point you just brought up there about modern day enterprise, because with a similarity in hardware and software that's being used in HPC now versus, you know, commodity hardware and, and Linux that's running in, in corporate systems, I'm wondering what other areas that HPC has sort of paved the way. Because if we look historically, there has always been a lot of talk about businesses dealing with the scaling problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and obviously, scaling was the problem that HPC originally focused on, was how to bid those big systems that can all work together. So I'm wondering, like, are there other areas where the lessons learned in HPC can translate now into the enterprise space, whether it's just data clustering, load balancing, network fabrics, et cetera? Um, yes, absolutely. So uh, you, 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 you nailed it perfectly. You know, when we first came... Uh, and really first started focusing on this. And again, I'm going to kind of go back to the Beowulf uh-huh. uh, architecture. It's a, it's, it is a monolithic architecture. It's flat, but it can scale. It can scale big. Uh, we've seen, you know, I, I personally know of, of multiple organizations that are running 10,000 node clusters, 10,000 nodes all in one like data center, one room, right? And they're scaling this up to, to gigantic sizes. And we've gotten really, really good at that. Uh, we can run applications across that mass, you know, with very t- high degree of um, uh, of coupling and integration between each one of those processes running on each one of those processors running on each one of those nodes. We're really, really good at that. Back in the, um, I'd say, uh, early 2000s to mid 2000s, I think we had a lot to offer uh, the enterprise and cloud in terms of that scaling factor. But to be completely blunt, cloud and hyperscale surpassed us very, very quickly. And what we thought were big systems, uh, they're, and don't get me wrong, they are big systems. If you just look at the sheer uh, node count or socket count, you actually see clouds are, and this is, this is I think, obvious to, to, to most people in the industry, especially in the cloud or hyperscale industry, but those systems are gigantic. Uh, they they can dwarf many of the high performance computing systems that we have, but where, where we have really optimized is being able to tightly couple and tightly integrate those systems together. And we're still really good at that. The workloads that run on these big you know cloud systems, um, they're obviously they're, they're they're not tightly coupled. They're they're extraordinarily loosely coupled from a high performance computing perspective. Uh, some of them you can do some forms of HPC workloads on them. And I'm now kind of bending my definition of HPC from when I first started. As I was saying, HPC was really you know about tightly coupled applications. Now it's about pretty much anything that is performance critical. <laughs> Anytime you see an application that's that needs to run um, as fast as possible, you see a very different use case from what you see in enterprise. Enterprise, for the most part, and this this is you know this is across orchestration systems, across virtual systems, and whatnot. For the most part, we're running services in enterprises. These are processes that have a starting point, but they have no defined endpoint, meaning they're going to run pretty much forever. And most of the time, they're sitting doing nothing. Even a very busy web server, you know, from a CPU time, is mostly idle. 
a high performance computing workload or any performance intensive uh, uh, application has a, a starting point and an end point, right? There's a point in which that algorithm is going to stop when it reaches completion. And the goal of this is to optimize it so it can run as fast as absolutely possible so you can start stacking up the system with, with more applications. And you want it just to run as fast as possible. So the goal of what we're doing, even though, even though an application is an application is an application, generally speaking, what we're doing in high-performance computing is so different just from the nature of the applications that are running. Uh, if we have an, an algorithm that's sitting in an idle state for any amount of time waiting for something to happen, usually that's not a very optimized algorithm. You want these algorithms to be spinning as fast as possible to the point where their only bottleneck is, is some aspect of hardware. Right, So you have a memory I.O. bottleneck, or you have a CPU bottleneck, or you have a network bottleneck. That's where you that's that's basically how you want to tune the tune these algorithms. And you want them to be bottlenecking as much stuff in parallel as possible. So you're kind of balancing out, you know, um, uh, blocking on CPU versus blocking on memory versus blocking on network I.O. versus blocking on potentially storage. It's a really different kind of architecture um, than what we're seeing in, in an enterprise. And now to get back to your question in a really long uh, you know, pathway all around the place <laughs> to get back there. We're doing things from at a scale perspective in a different way. And those capabilities are becoming more and more valuable to people and organizations that have never really thought about what is, what's needed to run this application at scale, right? Can we just run this in a cloud instance? Can we run this in a VM? And in many cases, if you're talking about a serial application or something that's not you know, really hammering the hardware uh, a lot, the answer is, yeah, it'll work just fine. But as soon as you start parallelizing, you start to run into scalability issues that can really adversely affect your, your runtime. And I can give a quick example of this. We were benchmarking a particular application, and uh, we, we found that uh, the performance we were getting out of one system was was not quite as fast as the performance we were getting out of another system. And the only difference that we can find in the two systems, all the hardware, the hardware was, it was not identical, but it was pretty dang close, was one system was running. I don't remember what system daemon it was. It was one of these, um, uh, it, I think it was a, no, I was going to say a first boot daemon, but I don't remember. It was some operating system daemon. It wasn't doing very much. It just kind of runs there in the background. And we were running this across thousands of nodes. We killed that daemon, that one daemon. It's mostly doing nothing on all thousands of nodes. And all of a sudden, we saw about a 20 to 30% performance increase just from the daemon that's mostly idle. So you can see how such little differences, little changes in your system when you have a really tightly integrated and tightly coupled application can affect performance. Uh, so we've been thinking about that sort of thing for quite some time. And again, this really hasn't been a big deal in enterprise uh, until recently. And as we're looking at, again, uh, computing data-driven analytics, and especially as we're starting to figure out how to scale those analytics jobs and parallelize those analytics jobs, um, as well as AI uh, and ML training, we're starting to see a need for a lot of these capabilities. And uh, that's where I think the crossover uh, and the cross-pollination is, I think, going to be so critically important. Now, this all seems very far from biochemistry. So let's put a pin in the HPC talk, um, wind the clock back, because I'm curious how you started in biochemistry and then ended up in this field. So like, what was your first entry into this kind of space in general? So 
<laughs> That's funny. Um, I started off I, 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 when I got my degree, I, I said to myself, you know, my, and my family has the history of doing startups and, and, and young engineering companies and whatnot. So I said, you know, I, I didn't want to just go to work for a big pharmaceutical right off the bat and, and wash test tubes for a living, which is what somebody with a, with an advanced degree in biochemistry gets to do uh, is pretty much wash test tubes for, for the actual scientists. Um, I said, I didn't want to do that. So um, I really wanted to find somebody who was was doing a startup. And I came across a startup through a variety of kind of funny events. And um, I came across this startup with an absolutely brilliant um, scientist who has a lot of history um, in um, uh, pharmaceuticals and whatnot. And I worked with him for, for, for a little while. And we were doing this, this one piece where uh, we were taking novel genomic sequences. And this was in the, the again, like mid to late 90s, so I think 96-ish. Um, we were taking novel sequences, novel genetic sequences. And we wanted to find out where in the various genomes these sequences were, were um, you know, were, were prevalent. And it seems like a really easy problem to solve, except for the, the fact that geno genomic sequences are gigantic. Uh, so it's like you're doing a gigantic grep. And um, the, the only place you can do this gigantic grep at that point was on the NCBI supercomputers that were available over uh, 28K modems, 56K modems. And I believe we were just getting ISDN at that point. So it just kind of shows how long ago this was. Um, so we were running these, these, we were putting our novel sequences up in these genomic, you know, databases and, and, and search engines and, in, in for, at these supercomputers at the NCBI. When he, he basically started saying, okay, I, I don't want to put these sequences on public systems, right? These are novel, right? We, we want to patent these sequences. We want to, you know, do kind of interesting things with these sequences. So we have to figure out a way of doing this um, on site, on prem. Now, for a young startup, we were literally, it was me and him working, right? Building and or buying a supercomputer to do this was out of the question, right? We weren't even funded. He was using his own kind of, you know, a personal account to fund this at this point. So he said at some point, he said to me, he said, have you heard of this thing called Linux? And he said it funny, I remember. And I said, is, is that some weird version of Unix? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> and he said, Let, let's, let's try this. He goes, I've got this idea. And we brought in a systems programmer as a consultant. And the system programmer agreed that there's this good idea, which is if you can get enough memory, we can load up this genomic database into a RAM disk and search it through RAM instead of having to constantly go out to the hard drive. Seemed like a simple enough idea. And, but how do you actually do that, right? Because here we've got this, you know, this motherboards and, and we got lots of memory and trying to figure out how to do that. Um, he actually purchased a couple deck alpha motherboards back at that, in that era with, with half a gigabyte of memory. Now to put that into perspective, this is well over 10 grand of just memory. Uh, just, just dims at this point, which weren't even dims. I think there were Sims or something. I don't even remember, but this was a long time ago. <laughs> and, um, we loaded this up, uh, the system programmer loaded Linux on there. We built up a RAM disk. We put the whole genomic database into this RAM disk. And we were running within seconds of the supercomputer. That process right there, we just downloaded an operating system off of the internet for free, 
managed by a whole bunch of people all over the world. And we don't know any of them. And, and everybody's been contributing to this altruistically. And all of a sudden, we just created a scientific tool that we're now solving problems, like real problems with. And it only costs us the cost of the, buying the hardware. That completely just... It, 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 it completely changed how I thought of the world, how I thought of my own career, what I wanted to do. It changed everything for me. And from that moment on, I stayed up night and day trying to understand and learn this, this operating system called Linux and, um, and then understand this open source community and how do I be part of this? And that was really kind of the, 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 the fundamental shift for me in terms of going from biochemistry and pharmaceuticals to operating systems. So a lot of people that work in the open source world always talk about their aha moment. Would you say that was your like kind of aha moment when it finally clicked? That was definitely one of them. Um, and it was a real kind of key, uh, key pivot for me because again, I mean, I just, uh, I, I spent a lot of money on my degree and I just basically, you know, said, well, I'm not going to use it. I'm going to go in a whole totally different direction now. And, and by the way, I've had no regrets. I mean, I, I, I think what I've done has been uh, just tremendous. As a matter of fact, um, there's another aha moment that, um, that I want to share. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, once I once I got kind of interested into computers, um, interested into Linux, and I really made that transition. At some point, I landed at the Department of Energy, where I spent almost twenty years um, uh, working. And, and one of the one of the the key things that I was doing there was, I mean, my degree, I guess, wasn't completely useless um, because I, I was using my knowledge in, in biochemistry and, and biosciences and life sciences to start working with. Um, other others in the industry in the in the scientific discipline to start build out comp, building out computational systems. So I was able to start using my background in science and my interest in operating systems in Linux to go and help them start clustering and start building these high performance computing systems. And then I kind of took to the next level where I wasn't just helping you know scientists in life sciences and, and pharmaceuticals. I was helping all sorts of scientific disciplines in at, at Berkeley Lab. And at some point, there was a big why moment for me, which is why, you know, when, when you think about what, what somebody's, what, what you're doing, and all of a sudden I got to see, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm helping people cure cancer. I'm helping people cure diseases. I'm helping people look for alternative energies. I'm helping people kind of plan for, you know, what's coming in the future via, via modeling, weather modeling, simulation, all of these sorts of stuff. All of a sudden, it's like, yeah, I'm no longer doing science myself, but I'm helping all of these other people do science. And I'm, I'm changing and, and supporting kind of how they're doing their science. And that, that was really my biggest kind of aha moment. And because it really defined the why I'm doing what I'm doing. And you can even see it today. I mean, in, in the company that I that I founded about a year and a half, almost two years ago now, uh, you know, the, the company's mantra is we believe in helping people do great things. That's what we do. We happen to do that through computers. We happen to do that through uh, high performance computing. We happen to do that through helping people, you know, with, with their operating systems and with their enterprise resources and whatnot. But our goal here is to really just help people do amazing things. And that why moment has just kind of 
carried with me throughout everything that I've done since. I have a friend who works in bioinformatics and he came from kind of a mass statistics background mm -hmm. and then kind of had to learn the chemistry side of things because it, 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 you know, it ties in obviously. So I can see how a chemistry degree would be very helpful if you're, if you're kind of working in that area. Now, when you were speaking about, you started to kind of get into open source more and learn more about it. Were there any like individuals or maybe projects that kind of helped mold your view of open source? Ah, yes, um, very much so. But it's a company. And uh, when I, when I, right before I landed at the Department of Energy, I worked at a, a really fun company. Um, back in 1999, 2000-ish, 98, 99, 2000, there was a few Linux companies that were just hitting the map. One of them uh, beat all of the world records at the time in terms of IPO um, value, right? It was IPO'd at one number. By the end of the closing date, it was so much higher, it beat all of the records. And this was VA Linux. A lot of people remember VA Linux as a result of this. There were three main companies um, at that in that era uh, that at least I'm familiar with. Maybe there were more, but there were three main companies that um, were really kind of pioneering uh, Linux at that point. There was Red Hat, of course. There was VA Linux. And then there was another one called Linux Care. And not many people remember uh, Linux Care, um, but it was, it was an amazing experience. And one of the things that we were, we were really noted for was uh, at all the Linux trade shows in that, in that era, um, people were handing out these little live CDs, these little bootable business cards that literally, it's a little rescue disc and it fit in your wallet. I was on. I was part of the team that that actually created that at Linux Care. That actually all came from Linux Care, and uh, the point of Linux Care, just as a quick summary, was to be the 800 number that you can call for Linux support. And uh, within, I mean, the, the the company grew so fast. I think I was employee um, 40 something. And within six months, we were well over 200 people. I mean, it grew really super fast. I have a, have a really kind of uh, funny story. I don't know how much time we have. If I, can I go into a quick story? Go for it. Okay. I got all the time in the world. So this is, this is a cool little story because it, it again, it um, really demonstrates you know, some of the people that, it, that influenced me a lot. We were building the, the bootable business card. And, and I remember this pretty clearly because we were showing, um, we were showing the bootable business card to, um, this, this, this guy that went by the name of Rusty, uh, Paul Russell, uh, who's a very, you know, very well known kernel maintainer. And, uh, he wrote, you know, hot plug. He wrote IP tables, IP chains. I mean, a whole number of things inside the kernel. And we were showing him the bootable business card, uh, Duncan and Seth and, and myself and, um, and others we were showing him the bootable business card and he said, Oh, this is great. Um, where's our sync? You have to have our sync. Why is our sync not here? Now, Andrew Tridgel, Tridge was another one of the employees of this company. So you can see there's a lot of kind of really big names in this company. And, um, and he says, Oh, you, you gotta, you gotta include that or Tridge is going to be pissed. Now, don't get me wrong. Tridge is, Tridge is actually super nice guy. He, he, Maybe been disappointed, but he said, Rusty said, we got to get, we got to get our sync on there. And we said, well, we only have like this much optical space, like a small, tiny little amount of optical space on this disc because it's a weird shape. It, it translates to 50 megabytes. We don't have any more space. Like literally we use every single byte we can find to put something in there and we just don't have the space. 
And he's like asking, what's the layout? Like, how'd you do this? And whatnot. And we told him and he goes, oh, it's easy. Just compress your file system. Now, keep in mind, there was no such thing as a compressed file system at the time. And we were just kind of staring at him going, what? Like, what do you mean? Like, how do you do that? And he, he tried explaining it to us and he didn't get very far before he got, he gave up and he just started doing it. He wrote the first version of C loop, the compressed loopback file system right there, right then. And then we were able to literally almost, almost double the amount of space we had. And we got our sync onto there. But so to ask me about like, like influences and, and things that were really big uh, for me, um, having so many people that I looked up to and that I can learn from, uh, all practically sharing the same fold out card tables that this whole startup was using at the time. Uh, it was just, it was an amazing experience for me. And it really did shape kind of how I uh, approached problems. Um, I actually, I also created a little project called Werewolf, which is cluster provisioning. Uh, so you can provision your operating system out and blast your operating system out to thousands of compute nodes at once. I really thought that the answer to how do you do this is a little bootable business card that you put in every single compute node. And it was the worst, worst idea ever. Um, because at that point, Pixie didn't exist yet, but Etherboot did. And so I ended up transitioning over to Etherboot, um, which was the predecessor to, to Pixie and, um, and other things. But I, I really thought that a bootable ISO was the answer to every problem in the world. Uh, and it turns out some of the things in, in Werewolf were, were, were right, but the bootable business card was not one of them. Um, so we ended up moving over to Netboot, which does work much, much better, as everybody knows. Um, but there was so much uh, just amazing people there, amazing pro amazing projects that went on there, and just such an amazing environment to just be part of. Um, and there's still a lot of people that I, that I talk to from there. Um, and uh, yeah, just nothing but respect for everybody that I worked with. So at what point did the CentOS project come along in your trajectory? And because I know that you guys based that on, was it Chaos Linux? Yep. Yep. So let's see. Um, this was right after I created Werewolf, uh, speaking of Werewolf. Um, so I created Werewolf 2001 um, in 2003-ish. So I guess not right after, but pretty close. Uh, I was at Berkeley Lab and... One of the one of the requirements of Berkeley Lab, one of the standards that was made was that they said they wanted to leverage an RPM-based distribution of Linux. You know, my background at that point was actually Debian. And um, I was a big Debian fan uh, when I first moved over to Berkeley Lab. But they said everything they wanted to do was an RPM and all their tooling was around RPM at that point. So I, I started using I started using Red Hat, which was what their standard was. It was Red Hat Linux, not Red Hat Enterprise Linux at the mm -hmm. time. Red Hat Linux was a freely available distribution. And um, I liked, actually, I got used to it uh, and I liked a lot of things about it. But after using it for a couple of years, I started realizing, I started kind of missing the community behind Debian. I started missing the, some of the aspects of it. And I started floating the idea around with a number of people about creating a community-based RPM uh, distribution of Linux. And um, that idea started slowly picking up momentum. It kind of floated through Freenode on IRC. Uh, for a little while to the point where we actually created a channel to focus on that and we actually started building it. Um, I had a few people around Berkeley 
that were also interested in it. And we used to go meet at uh, a little place called Jupiter um, on Shattuck Avenue. If anybody's been to Berkeley and you've been to Jupiter, um, that was pretty much the founding home of CentOS and um, well, Chaos, which then became CentOS. Um, and we, uh, we, we started talking about how to build this community RPM distribution of Linux. And we had a number of people that were really excited about this and, and wanted to take part in this. And so the project just kind of kept growing. And at some point, somebody asked, who's the project lead? And we all just kind of, you know, this was on IRC, so we weren't really looking around at each other, but we all kind of virtually looked around at each other. And then somebody said, Greg is, and I don't remember even who it was. And I said, what do you mean me? And they said, well, this was your idea. You kind of pulled everything together. So you should be the project lead. In hindsight, that probably wasn't a great idea. I was green. I didn't have a lot. I didn't have experience doing this. I did the best I can. And, you know, there's a bunch of failures that I had that I'd be happy to kind of talk through in the hopes that other people can learn from those, uh, those failures. But, but in general, that started Chaos Linux. Now, while we were going down that path, we were using Red Hat Linux as a build system. And we were creating, or rather, the build operating system, the bootstrapping operating system. And then we were creating a whole build infrastructure around that. And the build infrastructure was really a set of uh, scripts, um, um, many of them Perl. And we, we, we had all of this kind of built up. Um, we had a couple people that were, were working through different build systems from their background and whatnot. And, but at some point, Red Hat then announced that they're end of life in Red Hat Linux. And they're doing that in favor for their new product, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And I guess their goal was, I don't know, and for what it's worth, I'm guessing that they thought that there was a, a business opportunity there to convert their existing community of users to Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And I obviously supported that. I thought that, you know, Red Hat's done a huge amount for the community and they deserve to have a good you know, business offering. But that's not something that I can use um, at the lab. That's not something that... Um, that we can use as part of the Chaos Linux project. So, you know, let's go ahead and, you know, let's, you know, what are our options? And, you know, because we're adversely affected by this, as, as a lot of people were. And one of the, one of the engineers, uh, Rocky McGaw, said, um, how about we just take all of those source RPMs and we just throw it at our build infrastructure and see if we get an operating system out the other side? And it wasn't quite as simple as that, um, but that was the general idea. And he started doing that and he started pushing for that. And he literally got the last email that I saw that I found from him just fairly recently on the CentOS list, uh, on the first the cast list, and then it moved over to the CentOS list after we named it and, and decided to, to release this. Um, he was just over 95% done uh, when he passed away. And it's unfortunate because he never got to see uh, kind of the outcome of what CentOS would would come to be, which is a absolute game changing uh, technology throughout the enterprise ecosystem. And um, so that kind of that that was unfortunate, um, but that was kind of the, the the foundation of CentOS. We we decided with with the Chaos Linux project, um, we wanted to make sure that we were doing things right. I was trying to do things right. I was I was way extended beyond any of my background and knowledge. But I was trying to do things like set up a 501c3 nonprofit for it, set up an appropriate, you know, board of directors um, slash steering committee, trying to figure out, you know, even even no right nomenclature for this. You know, I was having a hard time with a lot of that, just doing the best I could. Um, when uh, the project was actually um, moved out of the 
um, the foundation out of the, the, the Chaos Linux Foundation, which I created due to a little legal battle that came up um, where I got um, uh, served by Red Hat to, um, to basically um, stop using the, the trademark, which was a very fair request. And so uh, we decided to, I decided that we were going to stop using the trademark. Not everybody agreed. And that ended up basically splitting the project uh, CentOS out of the Chaos Foundation. But that was kind of how CentOS came to be. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's very common when, for in anybody's career and, and life when you're going in to do things that you've never done before, that obviously there's bound to be things where you're not going to do it perhaps the best. And there's those lessons that you learn. So are there things now that you can look at and go, this was something I wish I had known then that you know now? about project management, about development, uh, you know, however you want to take that. Oh, yeah. I was stupid. Um, there's a lot of things. <laughs> there was a lot of things that I could have done better, um, but I just didn't have the experience um, at that point. The, the, the one thing that I probably really should have done is, is, is well, I, I've learned over the years that there's no excuse for lack of integrity. Um, and I think that's really the, the end point. Um, I don't want to do business. I don't want to work, do any you know, collaboration with anybody who I feel as though does not represent a high level of integrity. Um, there's, just no, there's, just, there, there's just no substitute for it. You, you can't justify it in my mind. Um, so integrity always comes first. And I, I would say that's probably the biggest um, aspect of, of learning that I gained over, the, over the, that and other aspects of my career. So for people that are considering getting into technology, whether direct development or all the other things that go along with open source, aside from you know integrity, what other pieces of advice would you give people to say, hey, this is something, keep, keep your eye on this, keep this on focus? Hmm. Um, not sure how best to answer that, but I can tell you what comes up for me. Okay. Is... Um, there's usually a burning desire of curiosity that I found um, that most people that are really interested in technology have. I used to give interview questions that most people hated. Um, some of them were unanswerable just because I was curious if people would, um, would let it go and drop it or if they would keep coming back to this question because it was burning inside their head. It wasn't about getting the right answer. As a matter of fact, there was one person who gave me the right answer. So I guess it wasn't completely unsolvable, uh, but it was pretty dang close. It was one person who gave me the right answer after thinking about it for like 10 minutes or so. But most people would keep bugging me to the point where they're emailing me after the interview on asking for help with this question and, and whatnot, because it's a brain teaser. It's not even a tech question. So I'm not sure I'm answering your question properly, but... Um, I would say that people really interested in this, it's really about that burning curiosity of, of wanting to do the right thing, the best thing, and, and wanting to figure out the most optimal way of doing it. And a lot of people say that, you know, a lot of it, that there's an aspect of laziness that is, you know, comes from this. And I've actually, I, I've, I've talked to some, you know, really great, you know, software developers that are very well known in the open source community that have actually even said that as well. I'm not sure because most of the really great software engineers that I know are not, are not lazy at all. Um, they are, they, they are so dedicated to, to, to doing, and they're so passionate about what they're doing. 
And so I just, you know, it's really, I guess, about following then just your passion. And if, if you're, if you're destined for to, to be within this, it, within a, you know, a software developer or whatever, um, within the open source community, I mean, it's that passion really is, is what should be driving you. So speaking of, of passion and intensity and excitement about things, uh, looking at kind of the, the broader Linux and open source ecosystems, are there things that are being developed or things that are being actively improved on that you see and it gets you really excited and encouraged for future possibilities? Oh, yes. So um, I'm going to bring up containers because I'm, I'm definitely partial to containers. You know, it's funny because over the years, I remember doing a, um, a panel I mean, a long, long time ago when we were, when virtualization was just coming out. And at some point I was explaining this and I said, you know, I think really the best virtualization would be kernel level virtualization where you're basically just operating inside of a chart. And it, it's funny because that's pretty much what containers is today. And it's such a simple concept. Anyone who's been doing, you know, Linux development, operating system, system administration, engine, operating system engineering, anything, it's such a simple concept. We've been talking about cheroots and jails and whatnot in, in, you know, system administration for literally decades. But when you, when you add in a few other pieces, all of a sudden, this becomes a game changing technology. And so I'm really, I'm really excited about containers for a number of reasons, but not just containers. And I'll get to it in just a second. But um, what containers, is, what containerization has done for me, uh, and why I'm so excited about it, is it, not because it's a look and feel of a VM or or it, or it gives you the ability to do anything like. No, it's a new packaging format. We just basically went from RPMs and DEBs to a container, which is a culmination of RPMs and or DEBs or whatever into a, a box, into a, a envelope that now we can ship that envelope anywhere and have confidence in where we're running and how we're running that. And when we start talking about things like supply chain security, which is a really big deal nowadays, how much containers can help and solve that, especially when we're talking about things like, let's cryptographically validate that container. I mean, we haven't been doing that, generally speaking, yet, which is still kind of uh, crazy to me. Right now, the container e ecosystem is like, let's go grab random bits of code off the internet that we can't validate, we don't know who made it, and let's go run that on our production servers as root. That's, that's what the container ecosystem is saying today. But if we can just simply validate that, if we can have absolute confidence as to where everything comes from, um, and then guarantee things like immutability, in our, in our environment, all of a sudden we're completely changing how we're doing everything. I mean, containers have already started that process. We're already changing how we're thinking about everything. We're already starting to get to the point where instead of packaging things in RPMs and dev files, we're actually packaging things in containers and we're posting them to a public location where anybody can go and grab that, download that and leverage that and build upon that. That is an amazing concept. And if you take that now to the next level, and where are you going to bring that? All of a sudden, you, you, you start thinking about it again, supply chain security. And now you start talking about orchestration and portability of orchestration, uh, meta orchestration. Uh, where are you going to bring that um, between sites? Not just, not just run an entire infrastructure in a Kubernetes instance, 
which which is, by the way, completely remarkable. You can define an entire infrastructure into a Helm file and then deploy that on top of kind of a base, you know, uh, foundation is is mind boggling to me still. But that is that that's just that's it's amazing. So starting there, and now say where do we go from there, and then how do we properly um, secure that? How do we properly trust that? And then how do we properly run um, between Kubernetes instances or between however you're doing your orchestration? And then how do we start revolutionizing? And again, my background is in high-performance computing. How do we start revolutionizing how people are doing science, research, compute, and performance-intensive applications? How do we start leveraging these sorts of capabilities and technologies, feed that back into HPC centers, and at the same time, make that into a composable, digestible format that enterprises can now start leveraging these HPC capabilities. Um, so your, your question was more broad. And of course, um, I made it all about me, didn't I? Um, well, that's why I'm interviewing you is to talk to you. So, But that's, where, that's my interest in, in terms of where I think this is, where I think this is going. And, and non-coincidentally, that's been my area of focus uh, commercially. Um, and that's what my company has been working on. Uh, and then all of a sudden we became an operating system vendor, um, kind of simultaneously. Uh, so, but that's really where I think the industry is going. Um, seeing more things moving to a composable, um, environment, a composable ecosystem where everything can kind of be, um, configured via a config file. And then you can deploy that configuration file. To me, that is, remarkably innovative. So the, the flip side to my last question about, you know, what do you see that is being developed that, that really excites you? The flip side of that is, what do you think is a problem that we as developers in the open source community aren't focused on that should be? Like, are there problems that you see that are hanging out there that we should be looking towards solving, but we just haven't yet? I, I would go back to, again, um, the security of containers and supply chain. I think containers is a fantastic method to really secure the entire supply chain along with your or your orchestration infrastructure but you know th there's some things coming out recently sigstore and cosign as an example that is coming out recently that i think is going to do a lot of good on this but i mean just to give you know there there's been how, how long have we been doing you know oci and docker containers and it, it took us 6 plus years to figure out that we need to be signing these images. Um, to me, that is a gaping hole in the ecosystem. Um, and again, you know, I, I think uh, Cosign and Sigstore are, are doing a, a really good job at how to approach this. And that's what I'm getting behind um, personally. That's where I think that where this is gonna go. But there's other options out there as well. I mean, there's Notary V2, um, but it doesn't have an, as much steam behind it, which is unfortunate again, because they've been, they've been thinking about that and doing that now for at least two years, maybe more. Um, and it has some really great potential. But again, it's just, it's not getting the amount of, of interest and necessity that I think we really need within the ecosystem. And I think that this is an absolute blaring hole in, in what we're currently, uh, operating in. So. To return for a little bit to the HPC front, 
And I want to apologize to all the listeners uh, if this is a question they're not interested in. Tough, because I'm interested in it. You can just fast forward for the next couple of minutes. Uh, because this is something, right? Yeah, and, and <laughs> this is something that I've I've always been curious about and wanted to know. And that is, like, is enthusiast HPC really even a thing? Because I kind of think it should be. It it is, but there's a high barrier of entry. Okay, so this um, is this is what I kept running into. Because I have a, a bunch of Blade servers in my house because I'm weird and I'm just that kind of guy. Um, and there's been times when I've thought like, hey, I could spin up a pair of my you know, HP C3000 blade centers that each have eight blades and I could build a small little cluster and I've got plenty of InfiniBand gear to go along with it. But there doesn't seem to be a real approachable point of entry. Actually, to bring up InfiniBand, very similar to that, where it seems like all the documentation for InfiniBand is written for people that pretty much already know InfiniBand. So when you're starting from zero knowledge, it's not so much like, let me hike up this hill. It's let me climb up the side of this cliff to get to where I need. Yeah. And I've noticed kind of the same thing with HPC. Like, is there an approachable angle for people who are interested in learning because they, they might want to do this as a career field or they're just curious and they want to kind of dig into it? Is there an approachable angle for it? Well, so the first thing that I'll mention is that it's all about the problem you want to solve. So I would say first and foremost, if you have a particular problem you want to try and solve, that could be something, it could be Bitcoin mining, honestly. It could be you want to do, um, you want to try to do a genomic search, right? There's lots of publicly available genomes you can leverage. Um, there's astrophysics data that you can, you can download and you can look for supernovas, for example. Um, there's all sorts of kind of things out there that, that you can do, but I would say start with, start with a goal, a problem of what, what you want to solve. And the reason why I start there is because most HPC systems are, are built and architected uh, based on the problems that they're trying to solve. So for many years at Department of Energy, when we first started uh, something that we called the mid-range computing group, which basically mid-range computing stood for, stood it was basically anything between your desktop and laptop to NERSC, a giant supercomputer center, right? Anything in between that, right? So go from two nodes instead of one, right? Go start with two nodes and going all the way up to probably about 2,000 nodes. Uh, NERSC is big, right? As many of the HPC centers are there. So that was what really started us um, going in this. We consider that mid-range computing. And we started off actually building... Uh, 10 clusters to kind of get us kicked off. We did one a month. Now, that was a really crazy year, let me tell you. I can imagine. Um, but we did one a month, and each cluster, uh, my, my, my boss at the time uh, used to joke about this, and he said each cluster was serial number zero because it was like starting from scratch. We would meet with the scientists. We would understand what their needs were. We would understand, kind of un start to understand how their applications work, how their algorithms work. Um, you know, what kind of a cluster do they need? How should it be built? What's the best hardware configuration for that? It was brute force. It, it was, it was difficult. Um, but it was a great kind of eye opener to how to build all these systems. And that was really what created Werewolf, by the way, is because now all of a sudden we had to go build all these systems. And we were talking about thousands of compute nodes. Um, yeah, it was just me and a couple other people to do all this work. So there's no way, you know, a system administrator can just manage that many computers. So we had to figure out a way of optimizing that. But we, we basically were, were kind of building the system for the application. And the reason why I bring that up again is because 
a lot of people think of high-performance computing that if I build this cluster, I can make any application go fast. And it doesn't work that way. Uh, the applications that we ran were fairly specialized. Um, when you're talking about parallel applications, um, MPI is usually the language that everybody starts talking in. And it stands again for the message passing interface. And MPI is basically the library protocol and wire up that you can use to basically spin up a lot of processes across you know, a lot of nodes or just one process on one node, right? There's a lot of optionality in terms of how you can use MPI. Um, you can almost think of it like if you were going to fork, if you were writing a, a if you're writing a piece of software and you decide to fork in this piece of software, now all of a sudden you have two processes, right? There has to be a way for these processes to communicate together. Most people think like IPC or sockets or something like that. Um, MPI does all of that for you. And you can fork as many times as you want, and MPI will manage the whole thing. And you just communicate between what's called ranks. Anyway, I'm going into the details on MPI. I apologize. No, fine. Go but for the, it. But the goal is, the, the, the main point, though, is, is that it really is kind of application-specific. So if you want to get into, into high-performance computing or, or building a cluster, I'd say start off with an application. That application could be as simple as a Hello World MPI program. And there's lots of them to choose from. Uh, start off with a hello world. You can also do a benchmark if you want. There's lots of benchmarks. Um, the, the, the HPL, the high performance Linpack, is the benchmark that everybody runs for the top 500. You can even start with that and say, that's the application I want to I want to try to build an infrastructure for. From there, you have to kind of work backwards. Uh, InfiniBand is not a requirement for a cluster but it creates a data plane that is super fast and really low latency. So it makes all of those parallel communications um, really optimized. And so for a small cluster, most small clusters actually don't need InfiniBand, depending on, again, on the application. Um, you, need a, you need InfiniBand as you really start scaling up. Um, but if you have a small cluster and you want to start testing, I would suggest grab an MPI Hello World. It's probably even easier than HPL and start building your cluster around that. Even build that for one node. Get that working on one system, that MPI program. Get that working on one system. Once you have that compiled and working on one system, your, your cluster could literally be, I have two systems, two, two computers. They're both installed similarly. I have the same software installed on both of them, and I'm sharing NFS, a home directory. That's all, oh, and the, the other thing is, um, you need some way to communicate on one going to the other. Usually people at this stage just use passwordless SSH. And when I say passwordless, I mean they have a key and they're usually using like a, an SSH agent. Um, although lots of big HPC centers just use passwordless um, uh, uh, keys, which isn't a great idea, but that's what they use. Uh, again, most HPC systems kind of think of um, the exterior being... Um, uh, very hard to penetrate into, and the interior being kind of soft and gushy. It's not really completely soft and gushy. There's still a lot of security protocols that go on on the inside, but not as much as what happens on the outside. So in many cases, passwordless SSH between compute nodes is, is a very reasonable thing. But then you just use MPI, and MPI will actually SSH even into the other compute node, spin up your processes over there, spin up the processes over here, and then make them all communicate. It will do all of that for you. So it's as easy as just starting with two computers. When you, when you start growing that and you get to five computers, you're going to probably want some way to easily manage all of those five computers or, or however many you have and some way to make this easier to manage. 
Werewolf is really good for that because you can now provision it out. OpenHPC is, is, a, is a, a Linux Foundation project which um, uh, supports, you know, uh, Werewolf actually is the provisioning framework underneath it, but it'll actually help you also kind of get kicked off and get you all the applications you need. But you can start now managing all of your operating systems with something like Werewolf. So Werewolf will netboot and provision out all the operating systems in exactly the same way to all of your compute nodes to the point where it doesn't matter how many compute nodes you have, you're still just managing one operating system image in Werewolf. And you can provision that literally to thousands of computers. Um, from there, and it's, it's, it's a nice way to start starting from the MPI side, because from there, you can literally just start building this up more and more complicated as you wish. So for example, if it's just you running that MPI, hello world, maybe that's, maybe you don't need a scheduler, but at some point, let's say you give me access to your cluster and I want to run some code too, uh, or you have a whole bunch of code to run. You don't want to just create a shell script that just, you know, goes through an array or does, uh, right? You want to start using a scheduler, something that will automatically manage what jobs are running on what compute nodes and, and, and automatically set up all those environments on all those compute nodes and, and manage that for you. So you can see how this can start. This starts simple and you can, you can keep going more and more um, down the rabbit hole uh, as much as you want. Uh, and to the point where you actually have built an InfiniBand-based cluster uh, using some sort of batch scheduling system um, and add GPUs in there if you want to make it even more complicated uh, and then start running these 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 workloads on top of that. I mean, you can continue going that rab down that rabbit hole until you're actually, you know, making lots of money Bitcoining, uh, bit mining, uh, sorry, Bitcoin mining. There we go. Uh, and And yeah. And you probably won't make that much money on it. But. Yeah, you'd probably need a huge <laughs> cluster to, to make any Bitcoins <laughs> yeah. because ASICs are just amazing nowadays in what they can do. So for the yeah. for the, yeah. the the two listeners out there who were, was interested in that question as well, I will put links for all the things that you mentioned in the show notes. <laughs> so from bootable CDs to building systems for the Department of Energy to then CentOS, you seem to be really good at this, let me build an OS that can then do these things. So I guess it's obvious that you would end up doing that again. So talk to me a bit about Rocky. Sure. Um, and I'm going to start it off with, with a confession. Um, I, I've been, been in open source now for since the mid-90s. Um, I've been doing it for a while. Uh, when, when we came up with the idea of doing Rocky, or, or, or rather a successor to CentOS, I did not realize how out of date my knowledge is. Oh, my gosh. I feel old. Oh, man. Um, I, I literally started jumping into this and uh, there are so many new tools and new ways to do this um, that are much more optimal. They're more efficient, but they're also much more complicated. And uh, luckily, a very large team. So I kind of went out of order. So let me back up a little. I, I, I wanted to get my um, my conscience clear. I, I couldn't do Rocky, at least not by myself. When 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 Red Hat announced that they were going to... I'm saying Red Hat announced it even, which I'm not even sure if that's a true statement. It was announced by a Red Hat uh, employee, but I believe it was validated by the entire CentOS board, even though I think Red Hat is the majority of that board, but don't quote me on that. Um, but CentOS, as we know it, was end of life, as I think most people are aware of at this point, and it, um, it kind of pivoted. 
And it pivoted instead of being a stable enterprise operating system that trailed behind Red Hat Enterprise Linux, it became a, a development ground that stood in front of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Honestly, this is a really good move for the community. And what CentOS Stream, as it's now called, has done is move the development of Red Hat Enterprise Linux from behind locked door to community awareness. Uh, at some point, it will be more open, I believe, in terms of people contributing to that Git repository, and it'll be more open and inclusive there. But right now, it's still Red Hat, for good reason, kind of managing most of those, most of those major PRs. But the important thing is that CentOS went from being behind Red Hat to actually being in front of Red Hat, where Red Hat is now a child of CentOS. That's a, that's a mind twister right there. CentOS is now in, uh, the parent of Red Hat. And we are pulling from the exact same sources that Red Hat pulls. So Red Hat builds their operating system from CentOS Stream, and we build our operating system from CentOS Stream. But I'm kind of going out of, out of chronology again. I apologize. Red Hat announced this. There was a large amount of people that thrashed Red Hat for this decision. They just thrashed it on the blog post. Um, you can go through that original blog post. It was just one nasty gram after the next of people that were dissatisfied with that decision. And for good reason, because uh, Red Hat just disrupted the entire supply chain for operating systems. 20 to 25% of all enterprise resources worldwide is running CentOS. A quarter of every enterprise system on-prem and in cloud and containers is running an operating system that was just end of life. That's crazy. And... All of a sudden, lots of people are upset. So um, I announced on that, that blog post that, hey, I'm thinking of doing another version of CentOS. Um, by the way, I'm Greg. I was part of the original founder <laughs> of CentOS. Hey, if anyone's interested, come over to the Slack, uh, which was at a place called uh, HPCNG, which stands for the Next Generation of High Performance Computing, which had nothing to do with, with CentOS or Rocky. But I already had a Slack stood up. Within hours, hundreds of people showed. Within a few more hours, it got to thousands. And within a month, month and a half, we were over 10,000 people, all asking, how can they help? How can they be part of this? Uh, I never spent so much time in Slack. So Slack is already, it's a, it's a time sink. Anyone who's on Slack all the time knows. It's a time sink. You have lots of constant conversations going on there. It took me like two to three hours to get from one side of Slack, going starting at the top, going through all my DMs, just to get to do it again. And every day for like two weeks was just going through Slack messages, trying to respond to everybody. And I know I miss things. Uh, I've even had people uh, upset at me for missing messages. And I apologize. I just could not keep up. But what that demonstrates is how important this was. It took a matter of, I'd say, hours to realize, yeah, this is going to happen. <laughs> this is going to happen, and this is going to be big. So we actually we started on it, and that's when I realized that my knowledge is completely dated, and I'm I, I was the most use I could be of this is to help organize the project, use the experience and the lessons learned which is AKA for I've screwed up in the past and I've learned a lot from that. And I'm hoping that I can help guide this so other people don't make the same mistakes that I did. 
Um, so I'm hoping that my lessons learned and my background would be uh, useful for this. And I did some things to make sure that the project is going to stay as stable as we possibly can. And we will not run into this problem again in terms of how the project is now organized and, and how we're continuing to govern the project. We're currently in process. And again, out of chronology, I'm sorry. We're currently in progress of basically doing board and subboard structures for Rocky Linux. And so there's a lot of uh, discussions that are happening right now on how are we going to ensure that we're making the best decisions moving forward. Uh, and everybody has has a as a say, and everybody's you know opinion is 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 included. And how are we going to do that and 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 keep moving forward and keep growing this? One thing that also became clear that I'd like to mention is one of the things that we found is, and, and I want to be clear about this. When I first did this, I actually thought this would go under my company. I thought we would put. It wasn't named Rocky Linux at the time. We didn't have a name for it, but we thought we were going to put this under the company, uh, under my company CIQ. We decided not to for a couple of reasons. First, we simply just listened to the community and the community really wanted a community project. But also part of the reason why the community so much was, was, was upset over this is because a company just made a unilateral decision, or at least that's how it seems. A company just made a unilateral decision that's affecting a big, huge open source community. And what's stopping CIQ from doing that? What's stopping Canonical actually from doing that? What's stopping anybody from doing that? And it became clear uh, that the answer is that one company can't stop it. Many companies can. And that's how to, that's how to run this is it becomes a coalition in a matter of speaking of many companies all coming together and many individuals coming together to make this happen. And that was really justified, um, not only with what happened with CentOS, but later what happened with Elasticsearch. And then before that, and that made me start thinking, well, let's go back through cloud history. There's probably about a dozen or so examples in which a company has pivoted an open source project or community in such a way that was governed by that company's interests and their uh, agenda. So that's not what open source is about. Open source is about dedication to, to collaborating and ensuring that uh, when you open source something, that it is, it is really going to be open source, that you're going to stand behind it. It's not a switch that you turn on and off to make a particular marketing you know, statement. And so that really started to bother me. And I said, you know what? I want to make sure that this does not get interpreted by anybody, that this is going to be used as such. So we really, we, we spent a lot of effort to create the Rocky Enterprise Software Foundation, which is really all about making sure that when, when either a company or an individual wants to open source something, this whole foundation, if you look at the charter, is about we only want to do enough. We want to do the bare minimal enough to ensure that this is going to stay open source and in the public, uh, in the public interest. And, and, and that's really our primary goal. Other organizations, uh, you know, they'll say, well, we will do that too, but we also want to own and control the project. We're actually different. We don't want to control the project. We just want to ensure that we can keep it open, that we can keep, that we can build the community around that. And um, so that was really what, what founded the idea of the, uh, excuse me, of the Rocky Enterprise Software Foundation and, um, and how we've been moving forth uh, with that. We have had some interest in others that wanted to um, bring projects into the RESF, and we're talking with, with various organizations about that now. But generally speaking, what we found is there are so many companies that believe in that vision 
that we all of a sudden started getting really big sponsorships. AWS was the first cloud provider that basically stood up and said, yeah, we want to support this effort. We believe in this effort. And then shortly after that, we had uh, Google jump in. And then we had Azure jump in. We had Neighbor Cloud jump in. Um, we have all of these clouds coming to the table saying, how do we help to ensure that this stays open, that this stays a community project? Then we had commercial interest uh, and uh, entities come. We've actually had a couple uh, also approach us to basically said, um, due to our other partners and relationships, we wish to not have this public, but we are going to sponsor you. <laughs> and so we actually have some hidden sponsors and, and people that are interested in, in making sure the project is successful without making a, you know, a, a claim about it. It's, it's just been a fantastic process to, to watch even competing organizations all get on the same page to, to come together to solve kind of a critical foundational need that we all have. Uh, so, and, and I was saying it's more than even just the clouds. You know, we have, we have, you know, hardware vendors, we have, uh, software vendors, we have, I mean, all sorts of, uh, of organizations that are interested in this. And one of the things that we actually got quite a bit of, and again, I, I, I hope this doesn't come off as me, you know, pushing a business agenda. I'm, I'm not trying to, but one of the things that came off was that a lot of people said was CentOS was fantastic, but it actually wasn't perfect. And it wasn't perfect because there was no organization that can actually do escalation support for it. So the, the Red Hat model was, was, well, we can definitely support it, but you have to uninstall CentOS and reinstall with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And there's a number of sites that are like, well, we're running CentOS on, you know, the majority of our resources. We don't want to reinstall because we have a support question. We want support for CentOS. Red Hat didn't do it. And, and none of the, there, there are some small, smaller organizations that are doing it and, and fantastic for them. Um, but they weren't like directly associated with the project. So one of the things that came out from this is we did have people asking us and says, with Rocky, we actually want the option of support. And that's a really critical piece for an open source project is that we can actually call someone and get an SLA. And so that is, that's how we kind of turned from really focusing on, you know, a, a next generation high performance computing platform to, whoa, all of a sudden we're an operating system vendor now too. Cool. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that comes to mind is that there's, I mean, for some people, it's a distinction without a difference, but I disagree. And that is that there's a difference between a company owning an open source project and a company being a trustee of a community open source project. To me, those are two very, very different things. And I know some people would be like, well, it's the same thing at the end of the day. But I really don't believe that it that it is. Would you agree with that? Um, I'm definitely on the same page as you, but I actually wanted to take it further. Okay. We're not even, we're not even a trustee of Rocky. We are completely, we, we basically bootstrapped Rocky. We, we got everything going with Rocky. Uh, we, we, we said, you know, here's, here's everything we need. Here's, here's the capital. We, we paid for a lot of things. We got everything off the ground. And then we said, look, we don't want to control this. We don't want to own this. We want the community to own this because actually that's how it should be. I want the community running Rocky and leading Rocky and taking Rocky into the direction that it needs to go to meet the needs of the community. I don't want to have a corporate say on that. So I want it to be 100% free. We're not even trustees of it. It is completely community. 
The only thing that we asked for is we're, we're putting this completely out there in the, in, in the community. The only thing we said is if anyone needs help, if anyone needs support, services, anything that's, that's kind of monetary or, or corporate-like, um, give us a call. We'd, we'd love to earn your business. That was it. That's our business model. We hold it hostage. Not at all. <laughs> so one of the things that the open source community loves to talk about is you know, the, the power of our community and the power of people coming together, working openly, collaboratively towards a common goal. So much so that in some ways it almost just becomes kind of like a cliche that people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, the community, they work together, blah, blah, blah. But then something like this comes along where the community, I mean, a community formed so quickly with mm -hmm. all an agreed you know, focus and a goal. Even though you've been in open source for a long time, were, were you surprised by how fast and how intensely the community started to form? Yeah. I, in, in all of my years of being part of the open source community, I mean, I've only seen a few cases in which, you know, really had um, a huge amount of, of energy behind it that was almost instant. I mean, one of them is a, a good a good thing to point out was uh, the formation of, of MariaDB, um, you know, from MySQL uh, and what happened with Oracle through that. And uh, the community came together so quickly and immediately there was a solution. That solution was immediately well known. It was immediately adopted and there was a lot of inertia behind it, like immediately. Uh, nothing prepared me for what happened with Rocky. Even the MySQL MariaDB um, kind of shift, uh, at least from the outside, what we saw with, with Rocky and CentOS was even more drastic than that. It was, um, it was aggressive almost in terms of how the community came together. And uh, immediately, we were all working together. We, were, we got, I mean, you know, it's funny. Um, in, in, <laughs> in all my years of open source, another aspect which is really interesting happened, which is uh, the team that came together is full of just wonderful people. The entire team, they're great people, right? They're, I, I mentioned integrity early on. And every person that we're working with in the team, I think, is just bringing something that's just so tremendous to the project. And um, I mean, we've we've had a few you know arguments and, and discussions and whatnot, as you can imagine. But that's because we're all just so passionate by what it is that we're trying to do, and by this this um, this project and the community that we have people that are um, they're so dedicated and they're they're just empowered with this. And I really I did not think that this that this would ever happen again in open source. I, I just this was an absolute surprise to me, and it's it's absolutely a privilege to to be part of it. Yeah, one thing that I, I know I've said many times to to people, and I don't know who was the first one to say it, so I can't I can't claim credit for it. But it's that all of us together are smarter and stronger than one of us. And you know the when people come together and can really pull together on a common goal, really amazing things can happen, and it's great to see. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Gregory, I think that's a great spot to end on. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me tonight and uh, to talk. It's, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure is mine as well. Uh, I really appreciated this. Uh, it was fantastic to talk with you, and I look forward to doing it again at some point. <laughs>